the industry hasn't changed dramatically in my career, right? It, it's broadly an oil and gas industry when I started, and it's oil and gas industry today, 40 years on, right? But I think of somebody starting in Shell today who might, you know, who might be leading the company in 30 years' time. And if you look at the commitments that Shell is making around its future and around the need to be at net zero emissions in the, you know, around 2050, that person, whoever he or she may be, is going to be leading a company that looks very different from the one today. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program and our Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. I think it's fair to say that there are some environmental advocates, at least in the United States, who would consider the oil and gas industry to be more or less the moral equivalent of tobacco companies, simply out to maximize profits without consideration being given to broader social implications of the use of their products. Um, In addition, many such critics would paint the industry, the oil industry, with a broad brush, not considering the ways in which many companies may differ from one another. I think that our guest today, David Hone, is a prime example of a somewhat different reality than that. He's been working in the oil industry for some 40 years, where for the past 20 years, two decades, he's been focused exclusively on addressing global climate change. In fact, David's title at Shell International is Chief Climate Change Advisor. In addition, he's a board member and former chairman of the board of the International Emissions Trading Association and a board member of C2ES, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. David, welcome to Environmental Insights. Well, thank you, Rob, and thanks for having me on this, uh, on your podcast. It's great to have you. I'm very interested, of course, to hear your impressions of the response of the oil and gas industry to the threat of climate change as well as your views beyond that on various elements of climate change policy, nationally, internationally. But before we talk about that, I think our our listeners are going to be interested to know how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, I I, I do mean go way back. Where did you grow up? Uh, Well, in quite a few places, actually. Uh, I mean, I was born in Australia in, in the state of Victoria. Uh, but my dad was in the army, and so at least up until high school, we lived in a number of places uh, in Australia, in what was then called Malaya, so you can guess mm-hmm. I was pretty young, and right. um, in Vientiane in Laos, where he oh. was in the Australian embassy. And so primary school and high school and college were in some of those locations? Uh, so primary school was spread amongst those locations, including uh, an American school in in Laos, because they, they mm-hmm. had a very large embassy there. And then high school was in um, Adelaide in South Australia. And university was at the University of Adelaide, again, in South Australia, because in Australia, most people, or at least then, uh, tended to go to universities in their hometown rather than the US and the 
the British model where they travel somewhere else. And what was your, your major field of study in college? Uh, chemical engineering, which was a sort of a, a natural for, for going into the oil and gas industry. So you thought about even before you graduated, while you were in college, you were picturing going into the oil and gas industry. Australia, I think at the time, has a very was a very vocationally oriented sort of push into university. People didn't mm-hmm. just go in and, you know, read something. They, they really went in with a view to where they were going. Um, I, I would guess at the time, I think the oil and gas industry was certainly something that I, I looked at, uh, the chemicals industry, which you know, a company like Shell has within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in Australia, not that I'd made any decisions, but the mining industry looked pretty interesting uh, because it was a big employer of chemical engineers. And what was your first job out of uh, college? Uh, so the first job was in, um, in Geelong in Australia. So that's just south of Melbourne. Shell has a refinery there. And um, it was as a refinery engineer. And uh, then that led... To sort of a more international career with Shell because uh, I was off off to the Netherlands within a couple of years. And in the Netherlands, were you still working in refinery engineering or had? That- yes. Yeah, so I, I guess the first sort of ten years of my career was in uh, refinery engineering uh, and refinery, and then it sort of bordered into s- refinery supply and economics, uh-huh. which was an entree into oil trading, which I, I ended up in London as an oil trader. Uh, for and, a number of years. And then how, how long were you an oil trader in London? About? Um, I, was in, I was in that area you know, between trading and shipping um, for about you know, 12, 12 years. And um, at, a, at a pretty interesting time. I mean, you know, we had things like the, the first Gulf War was when I was an oil trader. And then the, the enormous volatility in the market, you know, over, over within days and over weeks. So it was a very interesting time. And I think it was that time in oil trading that was one of the sort of draws into the climate world because, it, you know, back in 2001, it was really sort of gearing up for a carbon trading world. I see. So how did you actually then wind up working on climate change at Shell? Was that, did, did you make a request? Did someone no, come so to Shell, you? No, Shell, so Shell has a, an, a job market internally. Mm-hmm. And I was keen actually to to get a job in the sort of the, the central part of the company to get more of an idea of how the company worked, you know, what the, how the company set its strategy. And, uh, and this job came up um, as chief, as was called then group climate change advisor. And um, it was sitting in with the, you know, the, 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 the corporate center where, where they looked at strategy and, and the, the issue itself was one that, you know, I'd, I'd had some interest in, but not, you know, I, I would not, I'm not the sort of environmentalist in that sense. I, I was, you know, an engineer. Um, but the issue was interesting. It was in the right place. And so I applied for that job. Uh, and I think coming from a trading environment, they were, you know, and, and imagining that with the Kyoto Protocol, we were heading into a very trading based world around carbon, that um, I was a good candidate for the job. And I got it. <laughs> Can you explain to us what is the relationship between uh, what I hear Shell International, Royal Dutch Shell, and then Shell USA, for example? So Ro- Royal Dutch Shell PLC, which is a, a UK company, but headquartered in the Netherlands, uh, just to, to start the confusion at the top, mm-hmm. um, that is the, the parent company. And, and underneath that sit... 
numerous companies, some of them um, like Shell International, which, which holds a number of the, the corporate center functions like strategy, um, you know, the scenarios team and so on. And that's where you're housed. Is and that that's right? where I'm housed. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, there's a number of uh, country entities like, you know, Shell Australia, which is where I started, mm-hmm. Shell UK, um, Shell Netherlands. So even though we're, we're, we're housed in the Netherlands as Royal Dutch Shell, there's still a Shell Netherlands company, which which is where you will find the refining interests, for instance, in, in Shell. And then Shell Oil is the, the USA country entity. Mm-hmm. And each of those country entities are headed by a country chair uh, and there's a US country chair and, um, you know, a UK country chair and so on. And, um, but, but Shell is actually made up of um, lines along lines of business. So mm-hmm. there's a, a downstream business that encompasses, for instance, all of the global refineries, irrespective of which country they're in. Uh, so that's the sort of structure of Shell. But this is a single company and so on. Yes. A, so on something like climate change policy, for example, what you're working on, um, if you developed some policy, Shell International, does that mean that that's also the policy for Shell Oil in the USA and everywhere else? Or is it not that simple? No, it's, it's pretty much that simple. I, I mean, there's always some nuance because... You know, the, the, for instance, the carbon pricing message, which is a fairly simple one and something mm-hmm. that Shell has developed, you know, over 20 years or more uh, as being an advocate for a carbon pricing systems or system. Um, you've got to tailor that a bit for the local environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, right. what, what is going to, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the discussion that works best in this location? I see. But the, the, uh, that's, that's only because policymakers in different places, you know, want to hear different things or, or have a different uh, idea on it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's much more difficult in the U.S. these days, I think, having a cap and trade discussion. Uh, than it is perhaps having a, a you know broader carbon pricing or carbon tax discussion. That's right. Yeah, and and so, but the the policy that directs all that is the same across Shell. I see. Now I want to burrow in on on climate change and climate change policy, but before we do, um, I'm interested to hear your assessment of the situation in which we currently find ourselves, namely the global coronavirus pandemic. Can you tell us what what has been the impact and what do you think will be the impact in two realms with which you're very familiar? One is the oil and gas sector and the other is global climate change. Not, not so much policy, but uh, global climate change itself and the oil and gas sector. Well, I, I think as you've seen, the oil and gas industry has been hit quite hard by this this virus. Uh, you know, although you know underlying demand is still at, at a relatively high percentage of what it was prior to the the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, we, we there's some you know there's some deep wells. So so for instance, uh, in terms of in terms of demand, um, so obvi- clearly aviation went down to. Not quite zero, but not not too far off it, uh, and that you know that that posed some severe logistical problems. Uh, whereas you know other fuels were were more in demand, or or at least their demand didn't change a lot. But overall, there was a drop in demand. I think it it it, it stressed the oil industry for a 
briefly in terms of global storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember. You know, everything was still pumping. The famous and negative price. That's right. And then that was a bit of an anomaly because right. of storage uh, and storage aberration inside the United States. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. it, it, it highlighted the issues. But, uh, you know, with, with OPEC mm-hmm. uh, making cuts and with the industry sort of using the flexibility that it has, making the most of the shipping that it's got, uh, filling up storage in various parts of the world, uh, you know, all of the flexibilities brought to bear, including some production cuts. And that immediate problem has been largely addressed. Um, but there's still a period, I think, ahead of, of you know, weak demand, which the industry is going to have to deal with. And, um, you know, that, that will that will probably modify the, the rate at which, you know, the various companies and the, and the not just the companies like Shell, but the, the national oil companies, the rate at which they invest. Uh, so it will take a while for the whole system to correct to this, but it will correct, uh, you know, this isn't the first crisis that the oil and gas industry has seen. Uh, even in my career, you know, there's been several and it's, and it's a remarkably resilient uh, industry. So, so let's turn now to to climate change. Um, what is your, you know, candid assessment? I'm not asking about Shell per se, but overall of the global oil and gas industry with regards to climate change. Well, I think what I've seen over, you know, the years that I've been looking at this issue and, and been involved in it is that the oil and gas industry has moved a great deal. Uh, I, I think one thing that not everybody may necessarily agree with, but I think what's apparent today is that the industry is starting a pathway of transition. Uh, you know, that's been building momentum over over the last few years uh, as as companies have started to, to look at their portfolio, think about the longer term, uh, look at the opportunities that are out there, look at the, the future energy mix. But I think where people perhaps have, have, have problems with all of this is that they imagine a very fast transition. And, and you know, they forget about the immense scale that this industry uh, rests on. You know, it's providing not just Shell, but you know, all these companies, you know, 100 million barrels of oil per day into the global economy. And that's not just going to vanish, you know, in any short period of time. Um, we, the renewable industries have been at it, you know, at a relatively high pace now for some 20 years, and we're still in sort of single digits in terms of the percentage of solar, for instance, in the energy mix, and sometimes mm-hmm. in low single digits. Um, so this is, but but I think this transition is underway, and I think, and and you know I've seen that in the oil and gas industry, a recognition that, that that's happening, and that um, you know portfolios are going to have to start to align, and in some cases are going to lead that transition. So there there's a transition, surely, but you know looking at it from the outside, I'm not in the industry. What I see is that the transition is taking place at different paces among different companies, whereas the European majors, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, and Total have been quite ambitious in their climate change plans 
or at least their announcements that I see. Others, such as ExxonMobil and Saudi Aramco, um, I think it was just last week or the week before, have just set targets for the first time under the banner of the oil and gas climate initiative. Um, are you saying that the industry is more homogeneous than it appears to me in regards to climate change? Well, I think it's it's you know it's it's always been a very competitive industry made up of very individual companies, and, and everybody will chart their own course. But you know, I, I talk to colleagues in in many companies, and I, I don't really perceive that there's any fundamental difference uh, in, in the way companies are viewing this 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 long-term transition. Uh, you know, there, there'll be some companies that think it may may take a bit longer. Other companies who think, well, in certain areas, it may go quite quickly. But that's always been the nature of the oil and gas industry. You know, when, when Shell started out, I don't know, must must be 40 years ago or more in the LNG space. You know, many, many commentators at the time, I think, thought, you know, what what are we thinking? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing that? You know, who, who needs this? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet today, it's it's a major part of the Shell uh, portfolio and many other companies as well. And it's a major energy supplier into the, into the uh, global energy mix. Now, you've worked for many years, as you said, um, on emissions trading, which is natural once you got into the climate space, having been working previously to that in oil trading in, in London. Before we uh, get to the international dimensions, the Paris Agreement and all of that, um, can you give us your assessment of the European Union emissions trading system? I mean, I, I've always believed that the European emissions trading system was a good system. It, um, you know, it's it's a very simple design. Uh, it always has been. It's got a few extra pieces on it now. Um, it's um, it's focused very much on on large emitters where you know that are quite price responsive. And um, it has a declining cap that will eventually go to zero. Uh, the, the rate at which that goes mm-hmm. is under discussion at the moment, but nevertheless, it, it will go to zero. And, you know, it, it's, it has consistently delivered. Now, we've seen high prices and very low prices over the last uh, 15 years, but it just keeps ticking on and, and delivering. And uh, I think that's cause for... Uh, optimism around its future. You know, I think it will get this. It will it will get us Europe to net zero emissions. The net part is problematic because there's only one type of unit in the emissions trading system at the moment, which is the right to emit a ton of CO2. So at some point, you're going to have to introduce another type of unit. You know, a sequestration unit, so that people, so that participants can match emissions with sinks. But, but the trading system has evolved as those needs have become apparent, and I think it will evolve again. And in fact, you know, Shell and other companies are talking about you know, the introduction of, of new, a, a new type of unit into the trading system mm-hmm. as part of this rethinking around um, the, the, the energy, uh, you know, the, the, the net zero emissions uh, objective now. Yeah, it wouldn't be difficult uh, in principle to add uh, credits for 
sequestration, either to an emissions trading system or tax credits to a carbon tax system. Either way, sequestration in principle can be brought in. Yes, I, so I think so. And, I, and ultimately it has to because sometime from some point in 19, uh, sorry, 2050, there'll be no further issuance of allowances. Right. Because it will hit zero. Mm. Yet, I'm, uh, you know, I, I would almost bet my last dollar on the fact that in 2050, there'll still be emissions in the EU context. Right. Now, uh, now, you mentioned yeah. that the allowance prices in the, in the EU ETS have been quite low for a while. Um, what are the reasons why they were low? A lot of people were really condemning the system with those allowance prices, but what were the structural or other reasons for the low prices? Well, I, I think there were three, and we, we could argue for, for much longer than the time of this podcast as to the, ver- the relative weighting of those three. Right. Um, and we actually have in the past, I think, you, you and I have discussed <laughs> it at, at some length. But So the first one was that, you know, with a, with an eye on the Kyoto Protocol, the EU opened the door to um, the CERs, right. the Certified Emission Reductions from the Clean Development Mechanism. And that, that brought an inflow of units into the system. That that really got going at just the time we saw the, the, um, the, the, the financial crisis in 2008 and a drop in demand because European industry contracted a bit during that big recession. And so there was a lower demand for, for units within the system at a time when the gates were opening to let more in. And it's taken a very long time for that to correct. And then there's a third uh, underlying, and I would say this is one issue that's never quite been addressed by the EU. And, and they, they do, they recognize it, but it's always going to be a problem, I think. And that is that there are other systems competing within the space where the EU ETS operates that also act to reduce emissions. And some of those systems have mandated requirements against them. So you meet your mandated requirement. And if that drops the emissions below the level at which the trading system is set, then there's no, the carbon units have no value. And so those three things all competed for, right. to, to push the price down. Um, the MSR, the market stability reserve, um, you know, and in fact, Shell was one of the companies that really advocated for that because we wanted this trading system to work, uh, has withdrawn a lot of units from, from the trading system and rebalanced mm-hmm. it, I think, right. quite effectively. And I think then the, the other thing that's playing into now that's really good is that participants have finally got a line of sight on net zero emissions. And although it's 30 years away, when you start looking at big projects, uh, you know, big CCS projects, big reduction projects, you've got to be thinking on that time scale to build at the scale necessary to make a difference. Now, let, let me ask you, you mentioned those three factors. The last one were these so-called complementary policies. Um, and there's an important effect there, as you well know, that there's a real perverse effect of not only suppressing allowance prices in the trading system, but having the effect that those additional regulations, which are more stringent, um, which is why it's suppressing the allowance price, um, result in CO2 emissions simply being reallocated to another uh, sector, 
that's possibly outside of the EU ETS or within, rather than actually reducing CO2 emissions on net. This is what European environmental economists have referred to as the, the waterbed effect. And I know you've been, you've written about this, as have I. Yeah, so you mean the, the, what we also call carbon leakage? Yes, that, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. yes, I mean, that is, that is a, another effect of emissions trading systems is that if you're the only one that has one and you have a, a, an additional cost in your industry in your industrial system that others don't have right over time there's a tendency for some sort of leakage that's right, right. that, that, that it, it's cheaper to buy something somewhere else and bring it into the system rather than to manufacture at home and have emissions at home right now i don't know does does shell have uh, refineries in california Yes, I think what well, we we certainly have had them over time. Over time, because uh, my question is, yeah. I, I'm just interested to hear if you follow some of the other uh, emissions trading systems. I mean, there's Korea, New Zealand, California, and others. Have do you follow any of those? Um, I, I have to some or other extent over the years. I, I haven't looked deeply into the California one for a mm -hmm. while. I guess the one I'm closest to more recently is the is the EU system, but but sure. I know I know about the other systems. Okay. Yeah. Well, with that, let, let's just turn um, before we wrap up to the international dimensions of climate change policy, and for that matter, of emissions trading. Um, we've had an opportunity in these podcasts uh, in the recent past to discuss Article Six of the Paris Agreement with quite a few guests. Uh, all of whom you know, Andre Marcoux, Joss Delbecke, Kelly Kazire, Paul Watkinson, and Sue Biniez. So tell us your view. How important is Article 6 uh, that provides, of course, I think our listeners know, but for international cooperation in various forms, how important is Article 6 to the ultimate success of the Paris Agreement? Or is it a, is it a uh, peripheral element? So I, I think it's critical to, in fact, I don't think you can reach the goals of the Paris Agreement without Article 6. And, and the reason for that is that ultimately, you know, we're going to be matching sinks and sources around the world uh, for quite a while, uh, while, you know, while we're still using fossil fuels and while we still haven't found clear alternatives for all of the use that fossil fuels are put to today. And so there will continue to be emissions. Aviation is a great sector to, 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 as an example. Uh, but there are other sectors as well. I know everyone always says aviation. Um, and, and, and so just as we were talking about for the EU ETS, I think at national levels, there's going to have to be a matching of sinks and sources. You know, a really interesting example is a country like Singapore. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're a huge supplier of bunkers into the, the, the shipping market, the aviation market. They've got a very large chemical industry. These are all things that are going to continue into the future. And, and substitutes will emerge over time, but probably not in the time frame that a country like Singapore wants to get to net right. zero emissions. Yet it has very little local capacity because of its size to find sinks domestically. So countries like that, and even bigger countries, I think will look externally to find uh, emission reductions or sinks to match with their continuing sources. And Article 6 is key to that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be a number of countries around the world that have huge sink potential. 
which to unleash that, you want international investment into that country because why would they do it themselves if they've already managed their emissions? Why would you, you know, why would you go even deeper into negative territory unless somebody is uh, is financing that and, and you're delivering an export industry of uh, of negative carbon units? Now you mentioned Singapore, which is interesting. Singapore, of course, has uh, has instituted a, a carbon tax within the country, but something, as you know, that we've studied and written about and, and you and I have discussed in various settings uh, is the fact that international linkage can be among heterogeneous climate change policies. Indeed, a carbon tax can engage in a linkage, essentially trading, with a, a cap and trade system. So there are real opportunities there under uh, Article 6. Yes, and I think that's why you know we have to get this, this article to work. Now, if it isn't ultimately part of the Paris Agreement, it's not going to stop countries embracing bilateral agreements. But it's much, it's, it's much more efficient, I think, to do it through the Paris Agreement under the accounting framework of the Paris Agreement and under the the sort of the blessing of the UNFCCC, even if it's, you know, sort of local arrangements. So does that mean, are you saying that if the rule book for Article 6 is not uh, finalized at the next COP in 2021, that nevertheless such linkages and an international carbon market will nevertheless proceed? Well, there are already bits and pieces of it around mm -hmm. the world. Uh, yes. You know, S Switzerland is already right. linked with the EU. And there has to be some sort of reconciliation of that um, against their national targets. Now, as I said, it's much better if this is done under Article 6 because it gives some homogeneity to the whole system, which I think is, is in everybody's economic interest. But it's not an absolute showstopper to no trading. Uh, and... But nevertheless, I, we, yeah, we, we, we still need it. So uh, finally, on a, on a very different plane, um, there has been a rise, uh, I think you'll agree, in youth activism, youth movements of climate activism um, around the world, but particularly in Europe and the United States in the year 2019. Um, what, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think the first thing is it's great to see broader engagement on the climate issue mm -hmm. and it's great to see that people are passionate and interested and want to see resolution of the, the issues um, are, are they giving companies like shell a hard time sometimes mm -hmm. but i think you know we have to, we we have to listen to uh we have to listen to them they they are the ones that are inheriting the problems that are associated with rising carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and therefore it's not unreasonable that they are active in the space of, of trying to encourage uh, change I, I, I think a lot more a lot more people need though to enter into the what we call, I don't know if it's the same in the US but what we call stem science technology engineering yes. math types of disciplines and I, I would really encourage you know, these same activists to join the, the energy industry. You know, it's a great career and it's, it's a career that you're going to see an awful lot of change. You know, when I think about my career in Shell, it's, it's the industry hasn't changed 
dramatically in my career, right? It, it's broadly an oil and gas industry when I started, and it's oil and gas industry today, 40 years on, right? But I think of somebody starting in Shell today who might, you know, who might be leading the company in 30 years' time. And if you look at the commitments that Shell is making around its future and around the need to be at net zero emissions in the, you know, around 2050, that person, whoever he or she may be, is going to be leading a company that looks very different from the one today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's an exciting challenge to be part of. That that is exciting, and that's actually an, a great place to end. You know, recognizing that uh, the people who will succeed you and Shell are people that are of the age of the youth activists today, just as the people that will succeed me at Harvard are of the age of the youth activists today. So thank you very much, David, for taking time to to join us today. Thank you, Rob. So thanks again to our guest today, David Hone, Chief Climate Change Advisor at Shell International. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.